Have you ever needed a supportive community in your journey to advance racial equity, stop and prevent oppression, and catalyze change in your life or your organization? Join us in our online community at intentionallyact.com. As James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Join us online to confront the challenging questions and situations in your journey to advance racial equity as we build community to offer professional, personal, and organizational development, skills, and knowledge. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Atia Martin. Welcome to Intentionally Act Now, a podcast that supports the All Aces mission to activate consciousness, catalyze critical thinking, and transform capabilities that advance racial equity and build resilience within ourselves and our organizations. We feature a wide variety of leading experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, conflict management, critical race theory, personal growth, and more. In this special episode, special guest Chris Conroy and I discuss internalized white supremacy culture, how it shows up, and what we can do about it. Conroy is the host of Whiteness at Work, a podcast dealing with this very subject. What makes this episode different from the Whiteness at Work podcast is that we got to spend time reflecting on our own identity formation, as well as the stimuli that provoked responses that led us down the paths that we've each ended up walking. I don't get to talk to Chris enough, so this was a real pleasure. A note about the name of the show. In 2020, we were calling it All Aces On Air. In 2021, we rebranded the show as Intentionally Act Live to more concretely center the show as IntentionallyAct.com's peer and public engagement engine. Join IntentionallyAct.com today. Hello and good morning, everybody. This is Rico Manalo, Chief of Learner Success at All Aces, Inc., with another episode of All Aces on Air. Uh, today, I am here with a very, very special guest and dear friend of All Aces, uh, Chris Conroy, who is also, uh, in addition to being the, uh, I don't know, is it the, the founder of the Wellspring Group? Co-founder. Co-founder, right. And you do that with your wife, correct? That's correct. Yes. So co-founder of the Wellspring Group, as well as the host of the podcast, Whiteness at Work. So today we've got something kind of special. He is not only a guest, but he's actually co-hosting this show with me. So uh, good morning, Chris. And would you maybe introduce yourself a little bit further to the audience? Sure. Good morning, Rico. Uh, it's good to see you, brother. And thank you for uh, having me on the program today. Uh, I'm super excited to be here, and it's a real pleasure. Uh, so my name is Chris Conroy. Um, I'm a partner at the Wellspring Group. Um, which is uh, a, a consultancy um, that supports racial equity learning um, across uh, multiple organizations, um, both in the United States and Canada. And uh, I'm partnered in that effort with my wife, uh, Kadesh Sims, who's an amazing individual on many, many levels and a fantastic business and personal life partner. Um, and so the focus, the bulk of my focus of my work um, is um, connecting with folks to unpack um, concepts related to whiteness um, and white identity, white racial identity, and, and, and figuring out what role those have to play in um, committing to racial justice in our daily lives. Um, so that's, that's what I do. And hopefully we'll have some time to talk about that today, I think. Yeah. 
yeah. And, uh, yeah, man. Um, that, that's, that's, that's it. That's the bulk of it. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, just to make it really clear for those who are watching, this episode is very much about internalized whiteness and how that can show up in our racial equity journeys and in the work of advancing racial equity. Uh, so to get us started, we've got uh, our, our usual question. So Chris Conroy, in 30 seconds or less, how did you become you? <laughs> well, it was a rainy Tuesday. No, I uh, let me take some notes. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so uh, I, I um, have been really interested in understanding um, justice and fairness. I think my whole life, mm. and as a kid, I probably had a pretty. I think my mom would probably testify to the fact that I had a pretty unusual. Uh, 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 um, overcommitment to that uh, wrestling with the idea of what was fair and what wasn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was one of those kids. Uh, and I think that um, I was really attracted to this idea of um, the law very early on. I was like obsessed with those, you know, law and order type shows. I was very into like, um, you know, a few good men was like a movie that I was really into when I was a kid um i read like all the john grisham books right about lawyers and i was kind of obsessed with this idea of um you know like can through kind of like rational argument and um kind of people doing their their detective work and their homework um can can we find the truth and can the truth help us get to and can revealing the truth help us get to a better world or get to a more fair fair world hmm. Um, and I think that that led me to a lot of different places, but first and foremost, it led me to the Suffolk County and the Plymouth County District Attorney's Office um, for a series of internships when I was a very young pup, uh, you know, just graduated from high school and in the wow. um, and um, having had, you know, some background and some knowledge of racism just through the relationships that I had in my own life, right? Whether it be with friends or, you know, just seeing the world that I was living in in general, right? I played football. So, um, you know, a bulk of my friendships, you know, allowed me to connect with other young men like myself across a wide variety of racial and economic backgrounds, um, which I think is one of the cool things about sports. Um, but when you get exposed to that, you also get exposed to the knowledge of what other people's lived experiences is all about. Um, and so I came to kind of understand what, what race looks like in that context um, by having friends that weren't from the same race as myself um, and didn't have the same lived experience as myself. And then I kind of took that relational knowledge and brought it with me to my first experiences outside of school, trying to make a way in the world and figure out how to uh, uh, find justice um and how to contribute to that uh and i was introduced up close and personal to the american justice system and how it actually works uh for the first time during those internships and um and it, what i didn't see was justice right I, I didn't i didn't see the things that i thought i would see in those books um back when i was a kid um in those movies so was just to kind of summarize and collect here mm -hmm. uh you had built up this idea of uh fairness justice and truth, like kind of an archetypical good guy, if you will. Yep. 
And then when you got the opportunity, you went to where the good guys are supposed to be, and you saw that uh, it didn't match your mental image. Yes, ten ten four, absolutely one hundred percent on point. Um, and the and the and the 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 tricky thing was right. The the messed up thing was, is that the guys that I thought were good guys, I still felt that there were pieces of them that were really good guys. And yet they were participating in a system that was unfair and unjust. And for, for lack of capacity to deploy their, their sense of fairness and justice in a different direction, um, or lack of interest in doing so, or just, you know, a whole bunch of other reasons that I probably wasn't privy to at that time. They chose not to, 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 to question kind of the underlying assumptions that created that injustice and unfairness um, in, in that work. Um, And so this is not to, that's not to disparage anybody who's doing work on behalf of, you know, any kind of, um, you know, any kind of work at the Suffolk or, Plymouth County District Attorney's Office, some amazing people in um, those institutions, and those institutions do an incredible amount of good um, in 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 certain contexts. Um, I mean, what I'm hearing you say, though, Chris, if I could mm-hmm. just break in, is yeah, that uh, you've got people that uh, obviously, as you say, have good parts of them, and probably want to be more of that part of them, right? Mm-hmm. But they're operating within a system that kind of constrains their ability to to do that. Is that what I'm hearing? 100%. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I also think it, it comes down to how do you see yourself in your role? Mm, okay. Right? I think we put on roles professionally. Um, and I was attempting to do so at that time as a, as a young person, right? As a young adult. Sure. And um, the 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 men primarily, because they're mainly men in these roles, although there were se- several women who were really influential in my development during this period of time. Um, shout out to Nudis Camargo, who was there at the uh, Suffolk County District Attorney's Office when I had my first internship there and is a phenomenal person, was in the Patrick administration and was my mentor in that particular role. Very cool. But the men in that context, I think, you know, often saw themselves as the good guys, but often kind of in this role where uh, they had the worldview where bad things happen and and really bad things happen, really evil things happen. And I need to be the person that stands at the door to prevent evil, evil things from happening. Right. Mm-hmm. So with that kind of worldview, right. Um, and this adoption of this very binary system of bad guys and good guys, um, even if that can be more, even, even if it's slightly more nuanced than that in practice, in theory, and kind of like the assumption of how to go about doing that work, um, if you kind of see yourself as the good guy all the time or the necessary good guy holding back the bad guys, um, there, there's problems with that there's things that start to come out of that that become problematic. Yeah, so that kind of reasoning, uh, you know, a lot of people think in terms of uh, binary, so opposites, but instead Mm -hmm. of like 
logical opposites. So for example, we've got good guy. The logical opposite of good guy is just guy, not bad guy, right? That's the polar opposite. So I, I think mm -hmm. that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. But I can, you know, like, just like anything else, I, I imagine that if you're doing this uh, day in, day out, that you become faster at identifying who are in the bad group and perhaps it becomes uh, somewhat automatic or maybe it becomes something that people don't think about so intentionally before they make that that evaluation well yeah i'll give you a more concrete example right so i was part of very early on i was part of this program called the safe neighborhood initiative which is a federal mm -hmm. program that was operating through the suffolk you know through the district attorney's office right so the safe neighborhood initiative was a a federal initiative through the Bush administration that was intended to be able to provide a different form of outreach to communities that the district attorney's office was consistently um, having an impact on, right? Either through mm -hmm. arrests or, 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 or prosecutions, et cetera. And to, to build relationships with that community through community leaders and community liaisons and through meetings, um, where the district attorney's office would go out and engage, right, um, with, uh, in conversation with the community. So what I found was that if you look at the structure of the district attorney's office, there's the DA and then there's ADAs, assistant district attorneys, who do much of the prosecution of cases. And then there's victim witness advocates, right? So there's folks that are supporting victims or witnesses to crimes and then providing services to them. Um, to help support um, them and help them move through a, a prosecution or a case or a trial or to get resources to help them heal from the trauma that they encounter through these kinds of, so through, um, by being involved in traumatic events. Sure. Um, so we have an office with, with a bunch of ADAs, some investigators, some victim, so, and two, I think, victim witness advocates that I know at the time. Um, and we would, uh, I was partnered with the Safe Neighborhood Initiative. Now, what's really interesting is that the Safe Neighborhood Initiative was th was one victim witness advocate and one ADA out of the entire structure of maybe like a dozen or so. I don't know, maybe less than a dozen. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how many ADAs there were in the office at the time, but sure. a pretty good amount, probably less than a dozen, between a half a dozen and a dozen ADAs. And out of that group of ADAs, there was one um, ADA that was selected for this role, right? Um, Rasan Hall, who's an amazing guy and is um, now um, doing tremendous work, um, uh, has done tremendous work um, with the ACLU of, of mm. Massachusetts. Um, but Rasan and Nudis were, again, mentors for me in this process. They were the ones that were going out to the community and having conversations with the community about what resources the district attorney's office could help bring to help solve some of the issues that were happening. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, you run into this challenge where, um, as an ADA, you're prosecuting people yeah. in, a, in a courtroom, um, and you're going out to the community, and then you're meeting with their cousins or their aunts or their mothers or fathers or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. You're having these interactions where you see the humanity, right? If you're in a meeting with somebody and you're asking them, what do you need? That's a very humane question to be asking somebody. 
Yeah. And so you have this very human interaction and then you go to a courtroom or you go to a district attorney's office and then there's pictures of, on the wall of their kids. And these are supposed to be the quote unquote bad guys that you're putting away. Mm. And yet you're right. So this, there's this really odd juxtaposition between the system that's operating and putting people behind bars, right? Which our country does at a rate that's higher than any other country in the world. And, you know, arguably, you know, throughout history. And then you look at, and then you look at the, the inverse, right? The actual going out the, and asking questions and connecting with people. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that you see the actual human connections that are able to be made. And it's this really weird juxtaposition. It's this, it's contradictory. Um, and because Rasan and Nudis were so humane and so engaged in this work, it really made me think like, well, should my work really be focused on supporting the legal system or should it be try to align myself with these very humane, knowledgeable, um, 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 wholehearted people like Rasan and Nudis who are going out and really making human connections with people. And so that was what pushed me into this different direction. Okay, so would you kind of capture that as, uh, I don't know if you want to say it's a crystallizing moment for you, but um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, how did you first actually embark on your racial equity journey to the point where you were kind of realizing like, hey, there's this thing, whiteness, and, uh, you know, as a white man, of course, subject to that, um, I'm just really curious about how that all, did it hit you all at once? Did it come in dribs and drabs? No, I mean, so I think the more that you dig into your identity and what shapes your identity, the more you realize that, I don't know if this is true for you, Rico, but like there's more, there's moments where you think back to when you were younger and you're like, oh, that's what I was feeling at that time, right? That thing had something to do with my racial identity or that has something to do with my overall identity that uh, is connected to race. And, and now I'm, now I'm remembering it. And I, I, I had a weird feeling at the time, but now I can place it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we talk about the construction of our identity, right, there are some things that it makes some people uncomfortable to feel like there are parts of their identity that they don't get to make. Right. Um, yeah. That are constructed for them. Um, but that's the nature of being a human being is that you step into a culture, you're born into a culture, you're born into a particular place, and then you have to learn how to navigate that. Um, and so, uh, n- you know, initially there were some things that I were aware of where I was like, personally, this feels weird. And then um, I don't really connect with it like everybody does. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then there were some more explicit events that I think were more explicitly about race. So I think first and foremost, um, you know, to talk about what we were talking about a little bit earlier uh, prior to the show, um, you know, John A. Powell, um, who's an incredible uh, legal theorist and and talks quite extensively about rationality, um, is a wonderful professor, talks about whiteness as the a European, the, the logical conclusion of the European Enlightenment project of the isolated self. 
title. Uh, I'm going to credit Jabron Rivera, who is a, a another great mentor of mine and um, who pointed me in the direction of, of that particular reading. But that 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 concept rings really true. Right. It's mm. this idea that um, through rationality, through um, through a particular kind of uh, governance, through a particular particular kind of way of approaching the world, we can reach this version of an idealized self, right, way up here in, in the clouds. Yeah. And um, and I think that. Um, you know, for me, part of that experience was growing up in uh, an environment in a town, suburban America, right? Uh, moving, you know, moving out of the city when I was very young and moving into a suburban environment and um, and having this experience where I knew there were people who were not white in the world, right? I knew that there were things happening beyond me, right? Like whether we're talking about, you know, as a, as a 10, 12 year old, you start to become aware of things like the uh, external world through the news, right? And so the Gulf War is happening in 92. I'm gonna date myself here because I'm 38 years old, right? So, but <laughs> the Gulf War is happening, right? Rodney King riots are happening. Football is happening. Most of my most of my superheroes that I'm watching on TV, right? Are black men, right? Because mm. they're playing, they're playing in, in sports and you, you can see them being celebrated in that context and then disparaged in others, right? Um, I'm listening to Nas, I'm listening to Biggie, I'm listening to like pretty much like any any kid that's interested in East Coast hip hop, I'm in, I'm in that space. So I'm seeing these things, I'm experiencing these things. And then at the same time, um, I'm growing up in, the, in a community where it's like, get the house. Right, get get the two and a half kids, get the dog, play soccer on the weekends. Right, right. Watch the game on weekends, and then like, that's it. Right, and you're like, is there something else that's supposed to be happening here? I like, think you forgot mowing the lawn. Uh, well, mow, no, definitely mowing the lawn. That was definitely a part of it. Although my dad would probably say, you know, he would probably, yeah. hey dad, uh, he would probably <laughs> take issue with that. I mow the lawn now, but I was probably difficult, more difficult to get to do back then. I mean, honestly, um, my dad also has an issue with me mowing the lawn. So hey dad, <laughs> publicly acknowledging that as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I think, you know, growing up in that environment, you're, most people feel this right in yeah. some way, shape, or form. You grow up in a small town. You grow right. Grow up in. A, you're like, okay, is there something more? Is there something beyond this? And most people don't associate that with whiteness, right? But I've yeah. associate a piece of that with the culture that surrounds the construction of white identity. Gotcha. And um, you know, there's been different clues that point the way towards that, but um, I think that's the first memories I can think of that I can now associate with with that identity. Yeah, I mean, uh, reflecting on my own identity formation, it's much easier for me to see right now as a 35-year-old man that, yeah, there are definitely parts of my identity that I didn't intend to construct, but I constructed in response to something. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember a number of moments in my own childhood that were, kind of weird in that uh well to explain a little bit please i grew up in new hampshire mm -hmm. uh i'm obviously like my parents are not uh from new hampshire they're from the philippines mm -hmm. um and we're in, we're in new hampshire if you don't mind me asking 
Oh, sure. I'm from Durham, New Hampshire, which is okay. where the university is. UNH. Yep. UNH. Yeah. Uh, so I do recall uh, the first instance of me getting into some kind of trouble over identity was, and I was in kindergarten, a neighbor uh, asked where my family was from, you know, so a version of that, uh, where are you from, where are you really from kind of question that mm -hmm. I've become so familiar with since then. But uh, my response, instead of telling the truth, I'll, I'll admit I just straight up lied. I said that we were Eskimos, and I know that's not the right term now, uh, mm -hmm. and that we lived in an igloo. And she uh, just kind of took that as truth. So the trouble came later when uh, she came to the house or something. My dad answered the door. Mm. Uh, I, I was not there for the conversation, but he asked me why I had said that we were Eskimos and that we had lived in an igloo. Mm. And my response, I can't recall exactly, but it was something along the lines of uh, I, I thought I could get away with it because she clearly did not know. Right. Right. So that's a powerful thing for a child to understand. Like, yeah. oh, because people don't know what I am. Mm -hmm. I can tell them whatever I want, and that's powerful. The mm -hmm. other side of that coin is I don't know what I am either. So then trying to figure out who I was by comparing myself to this, uh, in my case, almost a monolith of, of whiteness and not even understanding what whiteness was. Right. Can you, I mean, can you tell me a little bit more about um, I'm when you when you think you when you chose that, can you think back to that moment and think about why you might have chose what you chose? Uh, I mean, I did have kind of a fascination with uh, representations of Native peoples that mm -hmm. I saw in my books. And on reflection, it's probably because when I looked in the mirror, my face was more similar to those depictions than the ones I was seeing around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I maybe that was something that I just thought was really cool. Like as a child, just imagining being out in this snowy place. Well, then I kind of like enjoyed the cold and the snow. Now I don't. But, you know, it was maybe something to aspire to or something that I hoped could be true or something. That's I mean, that's kids are amazing that way. Right. And you think yeah. about um, what you're able to construct in a very short period of time on the spot, <laughs> right? Um, which is why, you know, I love I love working with kids. I When I was teaching, right, that was one of the benefits of being able to work with kids um, yeah. is that they will think of creative ideas, right? They'll come they'll come up with a, they'll, they'll have a go at it, right? They'll figure out like, how how am I gonna navigate the situation? Then they'll, they'll give it a shot. And they're not, they're not so kind of gun shy or kind of, they're not so weary from, you know, having, you know, people shoot down their ideas uh, yeah. that, that, you know, they'll, that, you know, there's not that self-consciousness at that stage. So I think that's really interesting, right? As you get older, are there like, and as you encounter, again, that concept of whiteness, right? Do you, did you feel like, can you talk to a little bit more about like how you navigated it? as you kind of continue to bump up against it? Are there like other incidences where, you know, not, not five-year-old or six-year-old Rico, but like 12-year-old Rico mm. is having to reconstruct his identity again 
in opposition to whiteness or in the mirror or in the gaze of whiteness? And then like, and then how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, so one thing that I do recall very clearly is at some point, uh, so I mentioned that there was like kind of a white monolith where I come from. I'm yep. not the only Asian American from Durham, New Hampshire of my age, yep. but there were really very few. Um, there were, because of the university, there were some other Asian kids, uh, yep. mostly their parents were also immigrants like mine, uh, but they might not have been born in the U.S. Uh, my best friend growing up, who's really more like my brother, his his parents are from India, and uh, he grew up, uh, we basically grew up together, but uh, what's interesting to me is I never actually saw him struggle with whiteness in the way that I did. Uh, because most of the other Asian or Asian American children more closely resembled me than than him. So I think I was much more aware of this and not to disparage any of my former classmates. But uh, what I saw outwardly was that they were very much kind of that uh, demure, uh, shrinking violet kind of person. And that's really decidedly not me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I do know that one of the coping mechanisms that I had was I was a class clown. You know, I was mm -hmm. always making people laugh. I was always uh, doing things to get attention on myself. And part of that was so that I could show people I am not like those other quiet, demure, more stereotypical mm -hmm. Asian. Mm -hmm. What what'd your dad have to say about this? So you see your dad your dad is the first one that confronted you like hey why'd you why'd you describe yourself in this way like what was that what was that like as you kind of were going through those phases i mean so what i do remember very clearly is uh another thing that i should mention about my background is i learned very quickly that when my parents wanted to have a private conversation they would switch from english into tagalog yeah and at, at the time tagalog by the way is the the language that my parents speak from the philippines mm -hmm. and uh this was not intentional uh, at all, but this was also kind of the era of uh, Dr. Spock, like not from Star Trek, but the child psychologist. Mm -hmm. He was the guy at the time that was saying bilingualism is bad. So mm -hmm. they never taught me the uh, the language that they speak. Mm -hmm. Although I, I can understand what they're saying, I can't really speak it myself. Mm -hmm. So right there, I knew that there was a difference and it didn't really kind of uh, crystallized for me until later. But at some point, I really realized uh, when I was a teenager, we are having uh, such trouble with each other because of cultural differences. They had an expectation of me, and I don't think on purpose, growing up uh, along the lines that they were familiar with uh, for a child, right? So they had maybe an archetype of what a child-parent relationship should be. Mm -hmm. which is really different from the child-parent relationships here. Yep. Uh, and I remember it was on a TV show or something, but there was a kid that called their parents by their first name. <laughs> and my parents saw that and were like, no. <laughs> uh, you, had this moment, you had this moment where you looked at each other and they were like, don't try it? <laughs> yeah, I don't think any words were even said. It's just like, <laughs> message received. <laughs> Got it. Cool, cool. What? So I mean, so how did? What do you think that they were trying to do, right? Because it sounds like there were some things that they were rejecting about, like a 
traditionally culturally uh, white experience, right? Or, you know, Western kind of experience, like whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were pieces of that that they were like, nah, we're not having it. Yeah. Then, well, you even think about it. And then there's other pieces of it where they're like, uh, we are explicitly going to not have you learn this part of our, our you know, our cultural tradition. This, you're going to start to learn this part, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you think they made the decisions that they did with, with you as a parent? Because as a parent now, I know my wife and I, we're like always, like we're always talking about like, how do we make decisions, right? With, yeah. with the kids and like, be, and what are we explicit about and what are we not? Why do you think that they made the decisions that they did for you? So one huge, huge difference between the U.S. and, say, the Philippines is that in the U.S., people really think about the nuclear family. So mom, dad, the kids. Most of my friends growing up, they didn't even know their cousins. They didn't know their uncles or their aunts. Whereas I grew up knowing that my father has more than 20 brothers and sisters, like half brothers, half sisters as well. Yep. Um, Yeah, like extended family. That is family. You don't add the modifier extended. It's just family. Okay. Uh, So a lot of these things, uh, like in terms of social support networks, what we're seeing, especially right now during the pandemic and everything else, is a lot of Americans do not have a strong social support network. Yep. Yep. A lot of people feel super isolated. You can't really be isolated in the Philippines because (laughs) people around you all the time okay like if you're a little child and you're looking for your mom and you're just like yelling mom 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 like eight different women are going to come running and be like what what's wrong <laughs> you know yep it and and that played into their decision to how in in terms of how to parent you in the u.s how did that how did that play into their decision into make decisions about how to explicitly parent you through this kind of cultural change right they know you were going through cultural change how did the idea of family play into into that i mean that's really uh now that i'm kind of reflecting on it a lot of those interactions there were a lot of implicit things right and so i'm not sure if i really understood all of them um but i do remember that as a as a younger adult like probably in college at some point i was talking to my mom and she straight up said, if we had had better, uh, well, sorry about the truck. All uh, good. You know, if we had had uh, better family support or we had been around more family than in this country, then she probably would have had more than just me. Mm. Um, because, uh, and I don't blame her. I understand that as a kid, I was uh, probably, well, definitely a handful. So. <laughs> <laughs> same here yeah (laughs) for sure yeah yeah but this this whole thing about internalized whiteness i mean it is really uncomfortable to uh to reflect on yeah Uh, one of the things i really learned again uh by coming to work at all aces is that i had to internalize a further amount of whiteness just to get through grad school you know how to learn how to speak like uh somebody who has a master's degree, how to write in a way that could be uh, taken seriously academically. 
And what I was not building the skills for in grad school were uh, the skills to really break those down uh, in ways that people could easily understand. The language was kind of uh, not a symbol, but more of like some of the trappings of a certain kind of power. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And that's a little bit uncomfortable to sit with, too, because communication is all about exchanging ideas. If what you're exchanging is I know more than you and I'm better at whatever than you like, well, that doesn't make for great conversation in my experience. No, it does not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think what you're pointing out is that there's a subtext, right? Mm. So communication is there's explicit parts of communication, like the, the top layer, like the actual words I'm saying in it. And then there's a there's a lower level, right? Or there's deeper levels to it, which is like how I'm saying things, what's my body language, what am I attempting to project, right? Yeah. In yeah. the conversation. Um, does that resonate? No, 100%. I mean... And so you're adopting a subtext. Yeah, and as a kid, you know, it, it, the wonderful thing about kids is that they do take things at face value a lot of the time. And yeah. that's how they end up with these really interesting ideas about things that right. we never thought about. At some point, we, we learn to read the subtext, right? Mm -hmm. But there's not anybody out there just sitting down with us and teaching us, hey, this is how you navigate subtext the way that we would learn to read a book, right? right. Uh, you get some of that if you go to a school where they have teachers that are willing to engage with students on that level. But I don't think we can say that's generally true. No. No, I mean, we get most of that through our just for personal relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, how to how to read people, how to read the world, right? How to think about things, how to see beyond the words that people are using. Yeah. That's, all, that's all cultural. That's all from, like, again, that's why I always talk with people about their parents and their upbringing and why I always reflect on mine, right, when I think about these these circumstances and not just think about, my own upbringing, but like think about their upbringing, right? Because mm -hmm. again, a lot of this subtext is our, is stuff that we're born into. Um, and uh, it's critical to understand. I think you did a really beautiful job of illustrating, right? Like when I went to the academy, when I went and got my master's or when I went and got my professional degree, I started to adopt these kinds of not just words and phrases and ideas, but there's also this subtext that I learned to use in order to be able to get power. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And I don't think, you know, I think we run up against one of those problems, you know, all the time when we start talking, you know, start talking about whiteness, people don't really see that people are like, well, that's not whiteness. That's, you know, that's just what people do when they get their doctorate or that's just people with people. It's what people do when they get their master's degree. Right. Or that's just the way things are. Right. Um, and that, that is, that's to, that, that ignores this idea, right? That when you build a system or you build a human system, you build it with a culture. Yeah. And you build it with a dominant culture. There's a, there's a prevailing culture in which you construct it, right? Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking like, uh, you know, there's that really tired sitcom joke where uh, a doctor, uh, a lawyer, somebody with a professional degree is mm -hmm. explaining something to uh, usually the main character. 
the main character kind of goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then at the end, the punchline is, in English, please, right? Right. And it's like, okay, so right there, we're saying that people with these degrees, we know that they communicate differently, and it's powerful, and we don't understand it. Ha, 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 isn't that funny? Like, no, actually, if we look at that, I don't think that's funny at all. Right. right. It's problematic. <laughs> yeah. When, when you think, so when you think about uh, where you go from there, right? So uh, given who you feel Rico is, right? Who you are right now, right? How do you, so you notice that about yourself, right? And you yeah. know, it, and you notice that's, you know, you're dealing with a kind of power there and you know that the the power per your joke, right? Per the, or per the joke, right? That's often written into things uh, or sitcoms like, you know, it's problematic. What do you start? How have you started to deal with that or unwind that or uh, check that with yourself? Well, I mean, certainly with uh, the team and when I'm engaging with uh, clients and things like that, I do take a lot more care now to make sure that I'm explaining it in a way that I think that most people could access. Right. And the really interesting thing about that process for me, and this is how I know that it's really internalized, is uh, when I am intentional about reflecting on it, I can sometimes feel an emotion kind of rising, like, you know, like, oh man, I worked really hard to, to get this status and this power. Like, I wanna be able to, to embody that thing. And it's like, that, that provokes some pause in me. Like, mm -hmm. okay, so am I just out for myself or am I actually gonna practice what I preach? and try to improve things, not only for myself, but for everybody. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think. So this is like in the context of a, like, uh, if you're in a meeting or if you're in a conversation and someone's like, hey, Rico, like, just yeah. explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old, right? Well, so, so my background is in conflict resolution. And okay. a, lot of, uh, a lot of times we've got people who are dealing with real conflict in their organizations they don't know what to do about it. And so uh, for me to come in and just throw all my jargon around, is that gonna help them? Or are they gonna be like, I'm just more confused now than I was before. Like, thanks for right. trying to help me. But in fact, you just made more stuff for me to get through, you know? Right, right, for sure. Uh, you know, the, the weird thing is, is that the more you get, you know, the more you get, if you and I were talking and you threw something out to me that I didn't quite understand, you and I believe that you and I have the relationship where I'd be like, Hey man, like slow down, like back <laughs> it up. Like let's rewind it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if you go into a workplace, right, you're an expert. Like, mm -hmm. like you build your career, uh, providing con conflict re resolution, um, uh, services and supports and ideas. Right. When you go into an organization that's having problems with conflict resolution, I bet for sure there's times where you might go in and there might be 10 people in the room who are all senior leaders and like they also too have their degrees and they also too have their certificates on the wall, right? And you go in, you throw down a bunch of jargon and everyone's nodding their head, right? Yeah. yeah. But, and, and they also are probably thinking uh, like, can we make this a little bit more simplified? But they don't say it. 
Yeah. And right. you end up you end up going through an entire training. You end up going through an entire process, right? Where that organization's paying you, or you know, investing in investing time and people power, and because there's this more of a respect for the power mm -hmm. than the relationship, you like there's no there's no progress made. Yeah. So I'll tell you about something that happened pretty recently. We were uh, working with a group of people, and they're all really adamant that they needed mediation. Yeah. All right. They're like, we need mediation. Uh, they kept going on and on and on and on about it. And so instead of kind of coming in being like, hey, I'm a mediator, uh, I really just sat back and listened for a while. And at one point, it became really clear to me, like, oh, this group of people has heard the term mediation. They know that it's related to conflict resolution, mm -hmm. but they don't know what it means. <laughs> or right. like, so at some point, I very kind of quietly uh, found a gap in the conversation and I was able to ask like, uh, so I am a mediator. Can anybody kind of uh, help me to understand what it is that you're all saying when you need mediation? Which led to a really great conversation about uh, explaining exactly what mediation was, the different approaches, and just laying out options for people. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that was done in a very simple way, they were able to come back together as a group and be like, no, actually, we don't need mediation, but we do need conflict <laughs> resolution. And it was so great that we could get these options because we didn't even know how to ask for those options. Right. Right. So... It was a, a really humbling experience for me because, again, I just have to come back to people can't know what they don't know. And yeah. it's simple. We all know it. But I find that I have to check myself with that a lot and I feel better for it. Yeah. Uh, and that applies to myself, too. Right. So when I feel really terrible about some of the things that I've become aware that I've internalized instead of getting down on myself and being like, oh, I'm a bad person. I'm that. Uh, it really helps to, uh, to fit in with that analogy, not analogy, but the, the image of the racial equity journey. Right. Yep. So it's, it's about taking those first steps. It's about putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually you'll get there or you wind up somewhere else. And maybe that's OK, too. <laughs> well, I mean, to take that analogy and then put it back on the, the thing, like the conversation you have with the group, man, like I think what was interesting is so you you started with a really human question, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, What do you need? Yeah. So when people start to tell you what they need, you humanize them. Right. Mm -hmm. First of all, they got to be vulnerable because they actually have to tell you what they need. Right. Yeah, and that's a huge thing, too. Yeah. And there's, so there's trust that you're creating through the question, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is, is that you also combated the probably the internal emotion that you had where you're like, oh man, I got to act like the expert. I got to <laughs> come in with all the answers, right? You yeah. know, I'm, you know, I don't want to do that because I'm going to alienate people by like using a whole bunch of jargon, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you combated that by being curious. Mm -hmm. Like, so you can't be curious and fearful at the same time, right? Yeah. You can't be curious and angry or, 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 or anxious with yourself at the same time. Right. I mean, you could like, it's conceivable that you could, but one is going to predominate over the other. Mm. And if I go mm -hmm. deeper into, if I go deeper into the question and I become more involved with your world, 
then I'm building a relationship with you and I don't have to rely on my jargon to feel like there's some power in the room. Mm -hmm. We create that power together. Yeah. And so we've, we've been talking a lot about uh, relational approaches to things. And I Mm -hmm. think that this is a really important thing to, to focus on because, uh, you're connect, making a connection with another human being rather than the armor and the things that they uh, use to project this image of themselves, right? Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is what we do all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You know, when you got uh, your, your suit on, your tie, and you're projecting like, I know things, don't question me, pay me a lot of money kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. And that's real. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's been in business will tell you that that's real. Right. But again, that's within the context of particular cultural symbols and particular Mm -hmm. cultural values. And so once you start to question those values, you know, that that's when things get interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm not saying that that's where solutions start to show up, but things at least start to get a little bit interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wonder in the course of your podcast, Chris, like, have you been able to kind of, I don't know, get a sense of what it might take or approaches that would be effective in kind of broaching the the topic of internalized whiteness with somebody who maybe isn't so familiar with the topic or maybe they've seen it, but they haven't really dug into it. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I hope that's Uh, not the long answer. (laughs) It's not the long answer. I th- so it's build relationships, man. Right? Uh, I think, you know, start start on the home front, right? Like, mm. like how did I do it with my dad? Right? Right? My dad and I had, you know, had lots of arguments, right? When we were talking about this early on in my teen, you know, my late teens and early twenties. But now, you know, and and now he wants to. He's like, I want to really dig in. I want to engage in this, and I have. I'm like, okay, cool, you know, um, because but but it's because there's love there, right? Like, yeah. how do I know what love is? Well, he's the guy that loved me first, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm able to, and that's not like a that's not like a trite thing. Like that's a real skill, like to yeah. learn how to love through somebody through conflict. Mm-hmm. Through challenges, through ups and downs in the relationship, that is that's a testament to being able to do the thinking that's necessary to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. So I think first and foremost, starting to deal with whiteness means starting to deal with people who have different ideas and conceptions about the world than you do, and to build real relationships with them through not by avoiding conflict, but by yeah. engaging in conflict and, and, and discussion and debate um, in real ways and authentic ways in ways that respect the humanity of the person. Mm-hmm. If you can start from that perspective, then, then people will be like, Oh, okay. Like he's not, this guy's not out to call me a racist or call me this or call me that. Yeah, you're not trying to harm them. Not trying to harm. Well, I mean, this, it's antithetical, right? Yeah. If yeah. we're if we're talking about justice, if we're talking about promoting justice and fairness in this work, if we're talking about building a more humane world, I can't dehumanize you through that process. Right. You can't right? fight it, oppression with oppression, right? You can't do the same thing, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and also, if we're going to talk about racial justice, right, that involves an incredible amount of energy. It really do does. And it so, really does. Uh, like, white people are the folks that are furthest away from the direct pain of racism. Mm -hmm. And so we, so while it might take a tremendous amount of energy to be able to have these conversations, we got to start having, having these conversations with each other in a humane way so that we can make some progress because our black and our brown brothers and sisters are tired yeah. of, of going through this process. And the, I think the most humane thing to do is to, is to, to start humanizing each other and to start building relationships with each other so we can have real conversations. Yeah, I feel the same. Um, I'm kind of speaking to the technical side of things the audience, yeah. you can't see Miles, but uh, Miles, could we have that question again, please? Because I, I thought it was a nice one. Thank you. Uh, so Ivy Jones Turner would like to know how do we help get people to question their cultural values? And I think this right. uh, last thread of the conversation that we were just having kind of segues really nicely into that. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the first step always has to be humanizing people. Right. Right. So humanizing them and making it really clear that maybe you disagree with an, an idea, but you see them as a full person that yeah. you actually care about. And that that can manifest in many ways. So really concretely, you can approach things through questions. Right. So can you tell me more about uh, why you think that? And I'm not questioning your knowledge or your expertise, but I just I haven't arrived at the same conclusion. So can you walk me through the thinking so that I can understand where you're coming from? Mm -hmm. That's often a good starting frame. I don't know, Chris, if you've got other things that came to your mind. 100 percent, Rico. I mean, I think that's absolutely on point. Mm -hmm. I think starting with questions is how you get there. Right. Because so think about think of it this way. Right. If I start by making a statement about your cultural beliefs or your cult, right? Mm -hmm. I'm making a whole set of assumptions about who you are, right? We, yeah. we already know, we just talked about the fact that we construct ourselves, right? Yeah. In the course of our lives. So in me saying, I know how you define your own culture, I, like I'm literally making a massive assumption about who you are and how you've constructed your identity. Yeah. So the first things first, you gotta ask questions. I think that my favorite question for people vis-a-vis -vis race, right? Is if people are uncomfortable with exploring whiteness or exploring the what it means to be white, I always ask them like, what's the goal, right? Yeah. Like, cultures have goals, right? Like what what's the goal that you have, right? For not exploring whiteness, like why, why not, right? Because <laughs> yeah. because then you have to give in, like you have to dig for that answer, right? And if the answer is, well, it's unpatriotic, then you go from there and you go, well, what's patriotic, right? And then you go further and you go further and you just keep going and asking them questions and they're doing the talking, right? But yeah. I think the only way you can get people to that space of understanding their cultural values and the separation that the culture of white supremacy has from allowing even white people to have full humanity. Yes. I think that's so, so important. It's eventually. A lot, of, a lot of people think that questioning whiteness means devaluing white people, which is not the case at all. Not at all. 
not at all. It's because I love white people that I that I want to deconstruct white supremacy. Real talk, like 100%. Like, yeah. I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my family. I love the people in, in my community, right? I love mm-hmm. my neighbors, mm-hmm. right? I want them to be, f- I want full humanity for them. Yeah. Right? And I believe that all those people are worthy of love. So they are worthy of receiving it as themselves and not through the filters of this other stuff that we've collectively right. built up. So the, so, and so the, the danger in that is like to, you know, you talk to like a, like a, again, like a typical white guy and you're like, you could be more of a human being. And he's like, oh, like I am who I am and I like who I am. Right. Like, you know, I mean, that would be my response to on any day if someone told me I was incomplete. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Naturally. But you can't get to that conversation. You can't get to what's missing. Right. Again, this goes back to that conversation I was having earlier as a kid. Were you like, so what is the deal? Like, I just grow up to own the house and like have two and a half kids and like they play soccer on the weekends and I have beers in the backyard. Like, well, my butt, like, like that's the thing. Yeah. Right? That's right. what this is. Yeah. Right. So it's the incompleteness that you go towards, mm. right? but by asking questions mm-hmm. because you're only that my incompleteness might not be what someone's others that might be perfectly fine for somebody else. Yeah. But there's, but again, there are parts of this culture that says you have to be, you have to be a white guy that's hetero that you know that's heteronormative, has two and a half kids, owns property, owns a means of production, yeah, is managing people, right, in order to be viewed as this success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and if you don't have those things, then you know, go to church. Right. Because maybe there you'll start to feel included. And that's again, I'm a Christian, so there's nothing against church. Right. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is, is that we start off as complete. And our culture tells us that we're not unless we do X things. Yeah. We start to view people who are not those things in opposition to what's real Uh, or excuse me, to to what's to what's ideal. Mm -hmm. And that's when we start to dehumanize them. So I want to go through that again. Great question. Yeah. And uh, yes, thank you, Ivy. Thank you, Ivy. Um, also, question. I think that uh, now might be a good time to just acknowledge that, I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, interrogating my own internalized whiteness, it was more than uncomfortable. It was painful. It made me sad. It really bummed me out. But after doing that and engaging in it, I am hopeful that I can do things so that, uh, or I can change things. I can work on myself so that things don't have to, my life doesn't have to be that way forever, mm-hmm. right? So uh, you know that uh, Dr. Martin uh, really loves to land things on hope. I wonder if uh, we can think of uh, some hopeful way to land land this, this chat. Yeah, uh, the hope in letting go of our investment in white supremacy culture is that we can be more complete human beings. I mean, what's more hopeful than that? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know know either. Right. (laughs) Um, And I've experienced it myself. Right. I've been confronted by friends in the past where they're like, you're still trapped in your investment in this aspect of white supremacy or racism, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly difficult to confront. But once you do, 
and you work through it. And through a, a lot of a tremendous amount of grace, right, I've still been able to maintain and build relationships with people that I care about who are willing to say those things to me. Mm-hmm. In that process of moving through that, there's a tremendous amount of freedom on the other side. I agree. To build the kind of person, right, to build the kind of life that you want. You know, the other thing that I was reflecting on as you were speaking, Chris, is uh, as soon as I really started to work on these things within myself, for one reason or another, I found myself meeting a lot of other people who are in the same space. So where I was afraid of maybe feeling alone, mm-hmm. I'm really not alone now. You know, it's like uh, I met you. I met Atia. I met so many incredible, incredible people. And I really do feel more energized and hopeful than ever. Uh, I agree. And you're definitely not alone, this brother is, as you know, and no one, no one who engages in this work is, because yeah. um, there's, I mean, there's millions of people out here yeah. that are, you know, in the same frame of mind, and want to start to unpack these things. And I think it's very hopeful that we're having these conversations, that people are yeah. in asking questions, and I hope we can continue to do it because that's where the hope lies. Yeah, same here. So, Chris, thank you so, so much for being thank here you. with me today. I really, really appreciate it. And what uh, I think I'd like to say to the audience is if you're feeling kind of isolated and alone well, in engaging in this work, well, now you've got uh, two names and two faces that you can reach out to. So uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't speak for you, Chris, but please do reach out to me. <laughs> if, you if can you... absolutely reach out. I, the question is whether I'll get back. No. <laughs> not that That's I don't want to. Chris always gets back slow. to people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, All right. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank thank you again, Chris Conroy. Everybody, please check out his podcast, Whiteness at Work. And uh, Chris, uh, I know that Buzzsprout is a great place to get your podcast, but where else uh, can people get it? Um, So anywhere where you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google Podcasts, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on Amazon. You can just say, hey, Alexa, play Whiteness at Work, and it'll pop up and we'll get going. All right. Thank you once again, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. You've been listening to Intentionally Act Live from our website, intentionallyact.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Submit your stories and questions for future episodes by emailing us at info at allacesinc.com. Until next time.